it goes back to the Constitution. People misunderstand the nature of our of our government because uh, they think that the three branches, the, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial, are equal, and they're not. The sovereignty of the United States, the, the power that we receive from the uh, to take the place of the king resides in the Congress. And when the city was laid out, they wanted to symbolize the fact that the sovereignty of America is with the people. Alexander Hamilton said, here, sir, the people rule. And they symbolized that by putting the con- Congress that represents the people up high on a hill. And they put the White House down on the riverbank right next to the river, uh, but made it just high enough that the basement doesn't flood. Welcome to St. Louis in Tune. I'm your host, Arnold Stricker, along with co-host Mark Langston. St. Louis in Tune focuses on issues that impact and connect the greater St. Louis area. Our topics include the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. Our guest today, Steve Livengood, is Director of Public Programs and Chief Guide for the United States Capitol Historical Society. And they are a group that gives educational tours, and they have some symposia. But they were founded in 1962, chartered by Congress to educate the public on the history and heritage of the U.S. Capitol, its institutions, and the people who served in them. Steve, welcome to St. Louis in Tune. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about your role and exactly what does the Director of Public Programs and this portion, Chief Guide, I'm very interested in that, but what exactly do you do on a daily basis at the U.S. Capitol? The the Chief Guide part is probably the most public. There are wonderful public tours that are that are designed for uh, the ordinary people that to just walk into the Capitol. But a lot of people want more than that. They want a historian's perspective and, and uh, spend more time about it. The public tour is exactly one hour so that everybody can fit it into their schedule. And so what we do is to provide a little bit more for somebody who wants to support the historical society. That's the chief guide part. Well, the market for that is so enormous that we have to use other people. And uh, I can't do it all, and so I had to become a director so that I'm in charge of, of the volunteers. So we have more than 200 volunteers that are willing to give tours. We don't use that many, but, uh, but we can keep 30 or 40 of them active throughout the year. And uh, so I'm, I'm the administrator of that. And then whatever else comes along, like this radio interview, um, I enjoy doing things like that, so I step in. Now, a question, so to be a VIP, or is it is it somebody who's really, really a VIP, or if they just want a more extended, involved tour of the, of the Capitol, they get in touch with you guys? If, if, you, if you support the U.S. Capitol Historical Society, you're very important to us. Ah, gotcha. Okay. All right. So we're not talking yeah. about, like, senators, uh, friends, or... Uh, House of Representatives, friends, or things like that. It's it's if you support anybody that has generous friends, we're we're more than happy to give them a tour. There you go. So and, talk. And in fact, in fact, we do help out members of Congress because a lot of them will have a constituent that wants something more than just walking through with a kid that's been there for two weeks, um, which is what most congressional offices do. 
So if they have somebody who's particularly interested in the history, wants more details and more background, and uh, uh, my specialty is kind of the intellectual history, the history of the ideas behind the Capitol. And so I have a, a unique opportunity here. There are lots of people that are interested in that, but, but few people are available to, to give a tour uh, about it. So go into that a little bit more. What exactly are, are like major things that you would talk about? Well, for one, the cornerstone, because I know the story and is rather involved uh, on, a, on a public tour. This, the public tours are just limited to one hour, and they can't cover things like that. They, you know, they can say everybody knows about the cornerstone, but they won't give you, give you the kind of history that we can because we can take our time. Most people uh, that I give tours to are interested in more than an hour, and, and so m- most of most of the time I go on for two or two and a half hours, and I've had people that would have kept me. Some, some people say, you know, I could have listened to this all day long. So it's people that are really hungry for history, and there's a wonderful market for that. And we love history on this show, and that's one reason I was uh, eager to have you on. So let's talk about this, uh, the ceremony and the laying of the cornerstone, because uh, it's an anniversary today. When, when that happened. Get into a little bit about that ceremony and then some of the, the, the symbolism and the importance of the ceremony, and then we, we've got some other things that relate to the cornerstone that I never knew about, and I'm sure our listeners don't know either. The thing to start with is that most people don't realize that that moment is the moment when we were separating church and state. Hmm. That up to that time, for instance, in Virginia, the parish council meeting was not only the church service, it, it, was, it did the, the budget, and they all took care of that at the same time. And they had decided to disestablish the, the Anglican Church along with the Revolution. And so um, every little thing they do takes on much more importance, because they knew that they were setting the standards for how we were going to separate church and state. So what does the pre- the president is a, is a secular figure, he's from the state. How does he carry on religious functions? And they were paying attention to the, to the details of this, and that's why this uh, cornerstone laying ceremony is very important, because under the Artic- Articles of Confederation that preceded the Constitution, the Congress had chosen a location for a capital, which was on the, the uh, Delaware River above Trenton, New Jersey, on the New Jersey side. And then they didn't do anything with it, and they were found themselves paralyzed in building this city. And so people were really concerned about whether the new Congress under the Constitution could make a decision like that and carry it out. They had too many examples of the failure of, of government. And so it was important that, that this ceremony be used to make people believe this is really going to happen this time. We're not going to screw it up again. So that's the, that's the thing that most people don't know about why the cornerstone laying ceremony is so important in our history, is that this is, we, were, we were making the statement, this is how we're going to treat religion and the separation of church and state. I never realized we had a New Jersey kind of chosen portion for our capital. Yeah, there are a lot. There are a lot of little things, little details like that that we just kind of gloss over, and that's what you get on the public tour. 
and and but with, if you get my tour, you get a lot of little details like that that put a perspective on on the meaning of what we did. Now let's let's get into the the details of Washington laying this thing and some of the symbolism of of the importance of uh, objects that he used. I know a lot of it is uh, Masonic in nature, and he had a, a group of Masons with him. He was a Mason also. Talk about, about yeah. that particular thing. Well, the importance of the Masons in history is they play a major role in the separation of church and state. Prior to that time, the king was chosen by God and not by the people, and there was no institution that could challenge that until men got together and formed the Masonic Order. This was a, a secular but religious, uh, religiously respectful organization, and so, in fact, this whole ceremony is Masonic. There's, no, there's really not much else to it other than what the, the, the Masons prescribed, so it's all following uh, the, the, um, the Masonic Order and their way of looking at religious symbolism within a the context of secular government. So that particular stone was was placed, but there was something else placed underneath it. I guess that's—I don't know if that's a, a historical yes. kind of thing to— Yes, the, to... The, the, the Masonic ceremony prescribed various things, the oil and the wheat and, and so forth, that were poured on the stone, and then they, they put a silver plate underneath the stone, and I think that that is, is the Masonic as well. But they had not— carved a special stone for it, and so it's important to know that that this was just an ordinary stone that they took that was going to be on the corner, and they decided, apparently fairly late in the process, they said, oh, wow, we're all Masons, we need to have a ceremony. Hmm. And um, and so they did not carve a special stone for it. Now, is there a particular corner that cornerstones are always placed on? I've read a couple things that northeast, and then I've read some southeast, and but when you look at buildings here in St. Louis or in other cities, sometimes that might not be the case. Is there a particular corner? What we know, the only thing that we know for the details on the ceremony is an article that was in the Alexandria newspaper, and nobody else wrote down what they did. And the Alexandria newspaper says the southeast corner, even though it's my understanding that normally it was the northeast corner, uh, but for some reason, they chose the southeast corner, at, or at least that's what's specified in the newspaper. So they, since we can't, we don't know what the stone looks like, and and there's some question about what was reported in the newspaper. That has made it sort uh, particularly difficult in in kind of track trying to track uh, which stone is the cornerstone, because the only way we'll know it is if there is a silver plate underneath it. There's been a lot of expansion of the U.S. Capitol over over the years, right. and and I, I want to get into that in a little bit. But I want to kind of finish this train of thought. Uh, but also the the cornerstone, as as like we see cornerstones on buildings, you can walk up to them. They may be down at ground level. They may have some engraving on them. But wasn't mm-hmm. this particular cornerstone laid like below grade? Uh, no, I don't think so. Although. The grade was not established at that time. Okay. Uh, there were grading problems later on as they were doing the construction of the building. The Capitol was not put at the top of the hill. It was put on a promontory uh, on the edge because you could have seen it better from below. And therefore, the water washed down East Capitol Street and into the foundations. 
Oh, wow. And they, they had a continual problem during construction with that. And so they had to level uh, East Capitol Street so that the water would flow in other directions and not down into the into the building under construction. So it was a continuing problem. And then um, the, the surface itself was uneven. It's not a flat uh, spot, and they were going to have to take down some and build up some others. Today, the Senate wing, which was built first, is a little bit higher than the House wing, which is where we think the cornerstone was laid. But we don't know, in fact, what the... What the um, uh, levels were at that time but it was unlikely that they would lay it on the um below ground but the we know that the foundation at that point along the south side was unstable and in fact it appears that they rebuilt the whole thing later and that that probably is the reason why the cor- why they can't find the cornerstone was that it actually got moved as to what happened to the silver plate we don't know apparently it disappeared because I know there was some speculation, uh, what, in the 1990s or looking for it? There are people have been looking for that for a long, long time, I guess, and they were looking on the right, Senate that, side. That, that, was the bice- that was the bicentennial of the laying the cornerstone, and so they decided to get down in there and see if they could find anything. And was, was there anything found or any kind of, uh, no. is it more speculation? <laughs> right. What they did was to get into the mortar underneath the stones at that point. Oh, wow and see if they could find any evidence of silver. And that's because we have the technology to be able to do that, that that they wouldn't have had in the past, that we thought, okay, we've got a new technology, let's try it out here, a chemical analysis. And um, and they couldn't find anything. But the problem was at that corner, they, they laid out the foundations, but then they couldn't agree on the plans for that part of the building, which is the house chamber. And they didn't have enough money anyway because they were depending on the sale of lots, and the lots didn't sell well. And so they decided to just build the Senate wing. And so the place where we think the cornerstone was laid uh, wasn't finished at that point and was probably rebuilt because there's a record that the foundations were were unstable, and so they had to take it down and start over again. Hmm. And that's probably when this cornerstone disappeared. Maybe maybe somebody... uh decided to t- take the little silver plate and <laughs> it's hiding somewhere in somebody's attic somewhere. They don't even know what they had. Well, we know that there were a lot of people that felt they hadn't been paid what they were owed for the construction. And uh, some of them may have felt that the, that uh, this was how they were going to get the wages that they thought they deserved and, and melted it down. Yeah, so this is a good time, I think, to go into, like, the history of the construction of the Capitol building, because you have highlighted a couple things that, you know, I never knew of. I, I've been to the Capitol, I think, uh, three times, two times I know, and I, I took one of those hour-long tours, and it was like a a whirlwind. You, you, your head's kind of spinning based upon everything right. that's going on. You know, the Capitol building, from the design and the laying out of Washington, D.C., my understanding based upon the placement of the capital, and then the expansion of the capital. I kind of want to get into that a little bit, so I'm just going to let you let you do your thing as the chief guide. Okay. Well, just I said they had this plan and or this location in New Jersey, but we don't have any plans about what they were going to do there. They got to Washington, and Lafont laid out the city. He had been a 
uh, a French uh, man who came to the United States and calling himself started calling himself Peter instead of Pierre to let everybody know he felt he was an American, and they assigned uh, him to sort of lay out the city. And he did this elaborate plan for a city of half a million people that was 11 square miles at a time when London was only eight square miles and probably the biggest city in the world. So now you get a, you get a sense of the poor commissioners and they try to sell the lots and the lots don't sell. And, uh, uh, and they've got this impossible task of building what L'Enfant planned out. So one of the things they did, they immediately got into conflict with L'Enfant and and it was obvious to L'Enfant that he wasn't going to get his way with the commissioners. And he appealed to Washington, and Washington calls them all together and says, look, guys, I got a couple of other things higher than this on my priority list and setting up this great nation. Can you handle this amongst yourselves? And that was one of the ways that Washington administered and how he handled this whole situation. Well, L'Enfant saw that the he didn't have any friends on the commission. There were only three commissioners. But he didn't have any friends on the commissioner, and 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 so he was out. And so he, he left. He he managed to get another assignment um, from Alexander Hamilton, and he left. He was here less than a year, hmm. but he left us with this magnificent vision of a city. But the first thing that the commissioners did said, they, "We can't build all this. We've got to downsize." And so they they um, uh, turned the building around. Uh, L'Enfant intended that the Capitol face west to this magnificent mall, uh, but they said, we can't build that, we can't afford that. And so they turned the building around, make it face east, and um, uh, and they moved it over to the edge of the hill, so it wasn't even in the location that L'Enfant had intended it to be. And then I, I talked about the problem they had with flooding the foundations and all of that, so there's there's just one story after another in all of this. And then, of course, they get they build the Senate chamber, and, and then they come back and they rebuild the foundations for the House chamber, and they build that. And by that point, they were out of money. That's uh, 1809 in the Jefferson administration. Uh, so they hadn't built, built the center part of the building at all. Uh, when, uh, in 1814, August the 24th, the British came and burned those two sections along with the wooden walkway that was connecting them. So the rotunda hadn't even been built yet. The British didn't burn that, but they did burn the two wings. So we have to start over again. The foundations were pretty solid uh, by this point, and the, and the walls did not have to be rebuilt much, but they had to rebuild the entire interior because they had built it with, with wooden beams and wooden floors, and of course those burned up right away. So they had to they had to rebuild the building, um, and by that point we were prosperous enough that we decided that uh, that we would finish the building. So the rotunda uh, then got built right after the rebuilding of the wings, and all of that finishes in 1824. I got a question. I want to finished. stop you there for a second because the yeah. I guess the house and the Senate chamber, the the little domes, not the ones that we know now, but the ones that are closest to the rotunda, those were. Right that was really kind of where the House and the Senate were located, correct? That's right. The, the bigger wings on each end are much later. They built a wooden dome because when they originally built the building, they put the Senate chamber on the ground floor for easy access. That was Thomas Jefferson's idea. But Jefferson was not always that realistic, and he, and he knew what looked nice, but 
didn't have a sense of things like air circulation. And so when, after L'Enfant left and they tried a couple of other people, we actually had a trained architect move to the United States named Benjamin Latrobe. And uh, so they hired Latrobe right away because of the problems that they were having with the with the Senate, and, and they needed somebody to build the house wing. So he comes along and he says, look, you've put the major room on the, on the ground floor. It needs to be on the second floor for air circulation reasons. But that's still the chamber where Congressman Preston Brooks beat Senator Charles Sumner with a cane. Wow. Uh, later on, just one of the last uh, actions before the Civil War. It, it uh, the violence began to get right into the chambers at that point, but let's go back. We've we've uh, uh, built these two structures, and then we build the one in between with the rotunda on it and a and a smaller dome. But because they had moved the Senate chamber to the second floor, they had to raise the roof there, and that's when those little side domes were created on both the House and the Senate side. Okay, and um, and. The original plan had had a very low dome, and so they decided they needed a bigger dome to, uh, so it didn't look like three of them. And uh, but what they came out with this was uh, by this point Latrobe was gone, and Charles Bullfinch was the architect who finished the Capitol building. Uh, but people didn't like his dome; it kind of turned the, on the edge at the bottom. It turned out a little bit, and. Uh, it had a walkway around the top with an oculus where you could look down into the dome itself, uh, into the rotunda itself from above through a glass uh, covering. Uh, but they called it an upside-down salad bowl. <laughs> People didn't like this dome, and so they kind of made fun of it. And then the, then over the course of 20 years, the, the wood dried out. It was covered in copper, and it leaked all the time. And so nobody really liked that dome. Uh, but there are lots of photographs of it from that era. They finished the building, as I said, in 1824 with this dome, and and um, and that's kind of the date we give for completion. But, of course, this is the building that we planned when we had 15 states, and, and we had enough land for 25 states, but we didn't have a Louisiana purchase yet and hadn't uh, uh, taken the southwest from Mexico. And so the country expanded rapidly. This is the area we f- refer to as the uh, westward expansion or the manifest destiny. And so the building was too small by the time it was finished. Hmm. And so they they had to talk, start talking immediately about expanding. And when California became a state way out in the west and we had all that land in between, we, uh, we knew we needed bigger chambers. Each uh, state got two senators, and and each senator got a desk, and the members of the House expanded numbers every 10 years, and there just was no room for any more desks in the chambers. They were going to have to build bigger chambers, so they did that on each end. The Senate got the North uh, Extension, we call it, and the, the House got the South Extension. And those two extensions were the size of the rest of the building. Wow. But they turned turned them with the end facing the front so that they don't dominate the you don't have a sense that those that those extensions are so large huh. and then that that uh, dome the bullfinch dome was going to look silly on such a big building and that's when they decided to to put on a new dome that makes sense and that was uh, done what prior to the Lincoln being inaugurated 
yes, the, the the new dome was under construction. They'd already moved into both of the extensions, but they weren't done. Not all the pillars were up, uh, even even by Lincoln's second inauguration. So 1850 is when they made the decision. That's when California became a state. That's when they made the decision to expand the building, and then they planned for a while and added the dome and so forth. So it was really, it was really uh, almost 10 years of construction at that point and, and finished finally uh, in 1863 with the placement of that wonderful Statue of Freedom on top of the new expanded dome. Now, it seems like the, that building's been under almost, not quite, but continuous construction as the country grew and as things deteriorated. And, you know, it seemed like, you know, there were multiple kinds of uh, additions placed to it. When was the last major kind of uh, addition to the Capitol done? Do you know that? People often ask me, well, how long did it take to build the Capitol? And I always have to explain, well, it's not done yet. They just doubled the size of the building uh, after 9-11. Uh, they went ahead and built the visitor center that we have needed uh, for 50 years or more. And so that's all underground in front of the building. You don't have a sense that it's as big as it is, but, uh, but it, it is as big as the rest of the building, but all underground. Wow. But in the, in the meanwhile, let me go back to the story, because when they put this dome on, uh, they made it bigger around uh, to make it taller and proportional, but the uh, they kept the rotunda room in the same location, but they put a bigger dome on it. Well, the previous dome had come right up to the front door, and that meant if they expanded the dome, it's going to overhang the front porch. And so it looked like the dome was way too far forward on the building if you looked at it from the north to the south. It was centered from the east and west, but not north and south. And um, and so the architect said, we need to put 30 feet on the front, the east front of the building, to balance that dome so it doesn't overhang the front porch. Well, they they planned on doing it, but they didn't get around to it for 100 years. Oh, my gosh. Uh, it was not until the 1950s that the original building, the center part, the two original chambers and the rotunda, are that section of the building is sandstone, and it was very poor quality sandstone. They had problems with the water seeping into it immediately, and uh, and then freezing and and chipping off parts of the stone. So it was always a problem. And by the 1950s, pieces were falling off the front. They had to, to the decoration on the columns and so forth was the pieces would fall off and they'd have to try to glue them back on and some were held on with bailing wire. Oh my gosh. So in 1958, they decided we've got to do something about this front and they they knew that the architect wanted it 30 feet in front of where it was. So what they did was to build a 30-foot building all the way across the east front of the Capitol, the, the, that original section, and uh, and then they filled in, there were, there were hallways that connected the new chambers to the center, and they filled in on the sides of the hallways uh, with more rooms. So the biggest rooms in the building are in that east front extension, we call it. But that was not finished until 1962. Hmm. So the center of the east front was added. Now, this is important to the cornerstone because what that did was to cover up the area where the cornerstone was laid. Right. And so uh, they didn't bother looking for the cornerstone when they were excavating 
there. And uh, so later on, they had to come along for the centennial or bicentennial when they decided to look for the cornerstone. They had to actually drill down through this concrete floor in that 30-foot extension to get to the, uh, to the location of where the stone was. And that's why uh, it, it appears to us now that the cornerstone would have been underground, but it actually was not, uh, would not have been originally. But we had covered it over with this uh, new building that we, that we built on the front of the Capitol. You, you know, I didn't know that they had actually put a, a 30-foot facade on the front of the building. And, uh, you know, you, you would have thought that, well, before they did that, they would have liked, well, you know, gee, in a couple of years, we're going to be having the, the bicentennial of the, of the Cornerstone Lane. Let's, let's look for that right now before we go and add this stuff on there. But obviously that wasn't uh, a, a forethought at the time. Today, we have this ethic about preserving history that didn't really exist to the same degree in the, in the 1950s. That's a good point. And, and I, was, I was born in 46. I've witnessed all this stuff. And uh, the bicentennial celebration, I think, is what made people start paying more attention to our history and saying, hey, we shouldn't be wiping this stuff out. And so the whole ethic of that is different today than it was when I was young. So you've got the Capitol was built out of sandstone, correct? Is that what you were saying, the original right, building? Yes. yes. And, uh-huh. and what did they build the, uh, this extension out of? Uh, out of marble. Okay. Uh, I believe it's Indiana marble. The, two, the, two, the Senate and House wing marble comes from Lee, Massachusetts. But the pillars came from Georgia and Virginia, because they wanted geographic balance. This is being done just before the Civil War. And so we had to have some southern marble on the Capitol, too. And so for a long time, the pillars were a different color marble than the, than the, build, than the uh, base of the building. But recently, they came up with this technique where they could change the color of the marble. And so just within the last uh, year or so, uh, they have changed the whole color of those two wings so they now the extensions they now match the rest of the building the only sandstone that's left is the part that faces the mall and in the 1980s they had to rebuild that but they decided to keep as much of the sandstone as they could and the sandstone was originally painted because i said it was absorbing water and they knew that if they painted it would keep the water out and so it was originally painted and now now, it is painted, as uh, always, but only that part, only that west-facing uh, part in the center is, uh, is painted sandstone. The rest of the building all the way around is marble. So that, that's the part where the presidential inaugurations take place, right? Yes. Now, that's only since uh, Ronald Reagan. Uh, Jimmy Carter was inaugurated on the east front uh, on that extension. Really? And, in fact, the extension was not done at the time of John Kennedy's inauguration, so there's construction going on behind Kennedy in the photographs. I didn't know which side was the front, and I'm glad you clarified it was the east side, the side that uh, is kind of closest, what, to the Supreme Court area? Yes, yes. But we put it this way. The east front is the entrance. The west front is still a front that faces the mall, you just can't get into it. It's not the entrance. Okay, okay. So the Capitol does not have a back. It gotcha. has two fronts. Gotcha, okay. Now, talk a little bit about, if you can, uh, there's a crypt area, and 
you know, I'm always fascinated by these um, areas that nobody's ever heard of, or, or you know, you, you think it's like this deep dark right. dungeon or something like that. What, what's what's up yes. with the crypt? Well, P, uh, like the confusion of the dome of, of the dome and the rotunda, there's a confusion between a crypt and a tomb. The tomb is what's underneath, and it was intended to be a tomb for George Washington. It was built for George Washington, but the family would not let them have the body. And so we still have an empty an empty room there that was intended for George and Martha Washington. Hmm. And so the crypt is the room right above that from which you would look down into the tomb. Okay. And that that was intended to be the monument to George Washington. There would be displays and things of of his life and kind of an explanation of it. And then they didn't get the body, so they decided they would build Washington Monument instead. And so they were left with this room, um, but there was nothing to look at. There was this hole in the center where you would look down into the tomb, but there was nothing in the tomb, so they just covered over the hole. And then uh, then they had this large room. I mean, it's 90, 90 feet in diameter. Uh, and, and they put a few um, uh, displays about the history of the Capitol building and so forth, but finally they decided that that should be that we should put some of the statues there. And so now the 13 original colonies uh, get one of their two statues in in that crypt room. Uh, and so it's a it's kind of a monument to the 13 original colonies. That makes sense. And there's a I read something there's a star there where the yes. guess, surveyor's instruments were set up to set up uh, lay out Washington. Well actually Actually, the star is where the hole was to look down into the ah. into the tomb. Okay, okay. And so when they, the star was placed there only when they covered over the hole. But the whole thing isn't really all that stable, and uh, the star was starting to sink. And so, so now they've got uh, uh, stanchions and velvet ropes around, and you're not supposed to stand in the middle there because they're concerned about its stability. Oh, my. By coincidence... That's the place where the city of Washington is divided into quadrants, uh, northeast, southeast, northwest, and southwest. And so the joke was that if you stood on that star, then you were in all four quadrants of Washington. So they had to stop people from doing that by putting this fence around it. So I've got one more question here, Steve. What's the most misunderstood thing about the Capitol and the thing that people have no clue about? Okay, well, they all, we always say there are two questions that you get from people. Uh, the first is, where's the restroom? <laughs> yeah. But the, the, the second one is, where does the president work? And that's because people don't understand the president does not work at the Capitol. And, in fact, it goes back to the Constitution. People misunderstand the nature of our, of our government because uh, they think that the three branches, the the legislative, the executive, and the judicial are equal, and they're not. The sovereignty of the United States, the, the power that we receive from the, the uh, to take the place of the king, resides in the Congress. And when the city was laid out, they wanted to symbolize the fact that the sovereignty of America is with the people. Alexander Hamilton said. Here, sir, the people rule. 
and they symbolize that by putting the con- Congress that represents the people up high on a hill. And they put the White House down on the riverbank right next to the river, uh, but made it just high enough that the basement doesn't flood. The city of Washington is laid out to tell us how our government is supposed to work, that the Congress represents the sovereignty of the people, and the president is supposed to carry out what the Congress tells him or her to do. And that's the most misunderstood thing. The Congress is hard to understand because it's chaotic. It's got 535 sovereign members. The poor people that work for the Congress have 535 bosses. It's overwhelming. And so the president is easy to understand. You know, you get a certain amount of coherence there, whether you get nothing but chaos on the from the Congress. But as one former member of Congress that I worked with says, the Congress is where we come to fight without hurting each other. And so it appears chaotic, but that was the intent of the Founding Fathers because that's how you have 320 million sovereign leaders in this country. That's a great uh, great summation of that. That I had I did not heard heard it quite put that way, but that really makes a lot of sense. Why the Capitol is up like that? I knew the um, the White House was a lot lower, and uh, right. they had some problems with uh, with actually, uh, and I want to say poisoning, but people getting sick from drinking the water down there. Yeah, matter of fact, several yes, people were right. I think died prematurely because of drinking the water, including maybe one president. Uh, but yes. that, that does make a lot of sense because it is we the people. Yes, we forget that sometimes. Yeah, we're we're still unique about that in the whole world. That we that we are dedicated to this idea that every single person in this country is of equal value, and that they need to be represented equally in the government and need to be listened to, even if you don't agree with them. That's what we're fighting about in the streets today. You know, it would be important for those people who reside, uh, uh, excuse me, not reside, but work in that building, remember those things also. Because sometimes right. I, th- I think they they get a little full of themselves and that they are the ones in charge when they are representatives of the people. That's right, yes. And keeping that balance uh, is very, very difficult. The, our government appears unstable because of that, and yet because we have spread power out, in fact, our government is more solid. Well, Steve, I really appreciate you taking time today to talk to us about this. Uh, it's a historic day, and I, I, I love Washington, D.C. I've been there about eight, nine times, and you kind of go and you take a little one building because you can spend, my gosh, you can spend three days in one building uh, getting around. But I uh, would love to get back and meet you in person and uh, pick your brain and maybe have you give a tour after I become a member of the United States Capitol Historical Society. Well, it is my joy, and I will look forward to meeting you. Let me know when you come to Washington again. That sounds great. We've been talking to Steve Livengood, Director of Public Programs and Chief Guide for the United States Capitol Historical Society. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please take time to like and share this and other episodes of St. Louis in Tune that can be found on SoundCloud and Apple Podcast. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH 92.9 FM and Motif Media Group. Thank you for listening. I'm Arnold Stricker. Thank you.